Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schokes and today I'm joined by Felix Walker and Michael Memori to discuss the ongoing and interlocking crisis in Lebanon. We cover the drawbacks of the confessionalist system, the importance of foreign actors, the economic crisis and why all these problems are so difficult to solve. The entire Lebanese government has stood down following last Tuesday's catastrophic explosion in Beirut. Some Lebanese would joke that they can't tell the difference between when they have a government and when they don't have a government. The state is so absent from people's lives here. But the government is, you know, in a coma. We don't see them. Something else in short supply is faith in the power of the Lebanese state, such as it is, to get the virus or anything else under control. Like, as you see, you can see some people from the, uh, from the government here and they just sit and do nothing. Because it's not fixing, like we do revolution, it doesn't help. We become more aggressive, it won't help either. So it's like, so what can we do other than clean at the moment? So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our episode on Lebanon. Uh, we're going to start the episode by giving a short overview of the situation after that. Felix is going to explain the confessionalist framework. At the moment, Lebanon has had what might be some of the worst years in its history. It's facing political deadlock. Its caretaker prime minister has been a caretaker since August. His replacement quit after only a month. At the moment, it seems unlikely that a new government will be formed due to ministerial turf battles. There have also been ongoing protests, which started back in October 2019 against higher taxes and now envelop everything from taxes to political transformations to representation. Also, COVID is rampaging through the country. January 2021 has been the deadliest month for COVID in Lebanon since the pandemic began. The country is also dealing with millions of Syrian refugees who put enormous strain on the healthcare system and also increasing debt, very high inflation, and in general, an economic collapse due to the sources of income, being tourism and services, have been extremely hard hit by the coronavirus. But as I mentioned, there has been political deadlock, and that is something you cannot understand with, without understanding the confessional system, which d- defines Lebanese politics. So, Felix, would you want to get into that? Yeah, sure. The political system of Lebanon is basically a confessional system. Lebanon is a very diver- diverse country in the Middle East with 19 different religious communities. And this confessional system was basically put in place in, ni- in 1943 um, during what they call the National Pact, in which in order to avoid having one group dominating all others, they had an unwritten agreement which laid the foundation of a Lebanon as a multi-confessional independent state. And it was basically an agreement between uh, the then president, uh, Bishara al-Khuri, who was a Christian, a Maronite Christian, and the prime minister, Riyad al-Sulah, who was a Sunni Muslim, what they got out of that was the Maronite Christians would not seek any more Western intervention and the Muslims would abandon their aspirations to unite with Syria. So the system works basically with, based on the census back in 1943, the president has to be a Maronite Catholic Christian. The prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of parliament has to be a Shia Muslim. The chief of the general staff of the armed forces has to be a Druze. Back in the day, this was more in favor of the Christians um, because they were a larger they had a larger portion of the population. But since after the civil war, which ended in 1989 with the Taif agreement in Saudi Arabia, they changed the ratio to 50% Christians and 50% Muslims in parliament because the portion of the populations had changed over time. And currently there are two big political alliances composed of parties from different sects. There is 
the March 14th block, which is a combination of Sunni and Druze parties, and the March 8th block, which is a combination of Christian and Shia parties, including Hezbollah. But what is the current population like division like? Is it so? Does the parliament sort of reflect the, the demographic realities of the country? To be honest, like I said, back in the past, the Christians had the, the advantage because they were a larger population. But over time, a lot of Christians left uh, because it was easier for them to leave uh, compared to the Muslim population. Um, but also the Muslim population grew um, because they were the poorer population at the beginning. And also they gained in, in not just in numbers, but also in, in financial and political power, which led to that change in 1989 with the Taif Agreement. But since then, there has been population changes. And uh, I mean, I think there is an unwillingness to do a new census in Lebanon because that may create some problems because that would probably have to mean that some rearranging would have to be done in the political system. But it seems like the Muslims do have a majority of the population, but I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of the exact... Uh, so there hasn't been a census since 1989? The last official census in Lebanon was performed in 1932. So it's 90, 89 years old. Yeah. Holy crap. But, but it's, it, it seems like basically the, the, the Muslim... I mean, there were a lot of reasons behind the civil war, right? But one of the big reasons was that um, the Christian population was diminishing and the remainder of the population being, major, being Muslim and, and Druze felt that the apportioning of power was not representative of the, the actual you know, number of people uh, of each sect in the country. Um, and so tensions rose, a civil war happened. And that's why in 1989, they kind of recalibrated that. Yeah, that, that just remains an issue in Lebanon. Yeah, that's putting it lightly. Because related to that is also the role of foreign actors, because it is, or the Lebanon has to a certain extent become a football field for the other powers in the region to to settle their differences. You know, and most famously among those groups is Hezbollah, which receives a lot of support from Syria and Iran. Obviously, Israel, for safety reasons, also a lot of, has a lot of interest in in Lebanon. But do do you want to go a bit further into that, Michael? So, yes, um, Iran is certainly watching developments in Lebanon closely and is very wary of, of losing any of its hard-won influence vis-a-vis its proxy Hezbollah. And as far as Iran is concerned, Lebanon and Syria are spaces for it to put pressure on Israel and the United States. Now, There has been a lot of growing criticism of both Hezbollah and Iran, particularly since the 2019 protests and more recently the uh, port incident. There was a lot of fury online within Lebanon in early January after a statue of assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani appeared in the Hezbollah stronghold of Hobeiri in southern Beirut. And many Sunni and Christian politicians were condemning recent remarks by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Air Force Commander Amir Ali Hajizadeh, who claimed in early January that uh, Lebanon owed its missile capabilities to Iran and that Lebanon was in the front line in Iran's fight against Israel. 
So for Iran, Lebanon is certainly another environment from which it can project its its regional influence and perhaps even implement its forward defense strategy that is core to its national security strategy. Now, for other actors in the region, Saudi Arabia has always been regarded as the main protector of Lebanon's Sunni Arabs and has historically enjoyed huge sway over the politics of the country. However, that has changed, particularly since the abduction of uh, and resignation of uh, Saad Hariri in 2017, which most observers believe was done because of the Saudis. The Gulf states, which once funneled funds into Lebanon, uh, have grown wary in recent years. And particularly, they are alarmed by the rising influence of Hezbollah, especially as their wariness to the perceived threat of Iran regionally grows. And they realize that neither the Lebanese state nor politicians such as Hariri that they count close to them can do much about Hezbollah's activities and domestic influence in Lebanon. Now, that being said, they still provide some relief and are are willing to engage with the country not to give up all of their influence. So we do see among regional actors this using Lebanon as a another front with which to fight their, you know, their own personal conflicts with each other. We also think that the, the support which Saudi Arabia, for example, gives to Lebanon will be conditioned on, for example, being exclusionary towards potential Hezbollah affiliates? Or do you think they'll be kind enough to let anyone benefit from the support? That's hard to say. There is a tendency among regional actors in the Middle East to pursue a zero-sum strategy. But this is very ineffective. I can't imagine any actor asking the Lebanese government to not include Hezbollah and its allies in any government scheme or structure. And France knows this. And interestingly enough, this has been a source of contention between Macron and the U.S., particularly during the Trump administration. Uh, When he was Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo made clear that Washington was not happy with France's strategy to include Hezbollah in efforts to resolve the economic and political crisis in Lebanon. But France, recognizing the inextricable role that Hezbollah has in Lebanese politics and society, has said that Hezbollah's elected arm has a legitimate political role to play. So we do see this understanding by certain actors, particularly Macron and France, that it's very hard, almost impossible, to come up with any political arrangement that
that does not include Hezbollah. I, I would go further than that and say that it is impossible to, <laughs> to have any political arrangement which doesn't include Hezbollah because it is, you know, I think it's safe to say the most powerful force in, in Lebanon at the moment, especially considering how, how well equipped its military is. And one, one more thing about the, the Gulf situation is that um, a lot of Lebanese traveled to the Gulf and sent home remittances, which were a substantial part of the GDP in, in Lebanon, but due to the coronavirus pandemic, that has dried up. And I'll not get into the details of this, but the banking crisis in, in Lebanon was also caused by lack of foreign reserves, which they would get the through, through remittances. And I just wanted to add uh, concerning Hezbollah, not only did they garner support from the, their Shia consist- constituencies within the country, but they also garner support from the other sects within Lebanon. Um, and in August 2008, when a new cabinet came into power, uh, this new cabinet unanimously approved a draft policy statement that recognizes Hezbollah's existence, not just as a political actor, but also as an armed organization and guarantees its right, and I quote, to liberate or recover occupied lands, um, such as the Sheba farms in southern Lebanon. Because these, these lands would be recovered from, from Israel. Right. What they're basically saying is Hezbollah would become Lebanon's military. I mean, and in a way, that was kind of the case, like in 2006, where basically there was a war between Israel and Hezbollah. Hezbollah is considered by most to have successfully fared in that, in that, in that conflict. Um, at least in in uh, keeping uh, the Israelis out of the out of the country and uh, inflicted actually the worst defeat Israel has ever had with an Arab force. And after that, they they did gain a lot of support from from a lot of people within the country, not just from the Shia constituencies. Their numbers of volunteers, for example, rose drastically after the conflict. And uh, I think after that, they basically gained a certain respect within the country as an armed force. And uh, yes, it is not the official army, but it's widely believed to be better armed and just more efficient than the Lebanese army itself because the Lebanese, within the Lebanese army divided according to sectarian lines and that does affect its efficiency. The whole, the whole country is divided along sectarian lines, at least institutionally, but I think you know, later in this episode, it'll become a lot clearer that most people have very similar priorities concerning what, what they want and what they don't want, especially in their own government. Now, one of the things they don't want is you know, the inefficiency which comes from this whole extremely complicated political system where power is divided up between, you know, different religious groups, which in turn makes those religious groups very powerful and the people who lead those religious groups, that gives them both a lot of financial and economic power. Because bureaucracy, for example, becomes a tool for patronage and it also does not change because of how extensive the interest of certain powerful people is in maintaining the bureaucracy. I mean, yeah, that's that's one of the main criticisms of this confessionalist system in Lebanon, is that, like you said, it breeds this system of patronage where government posts are guaranteed to all confessions, and therefore they are not held accountable and and are free to dispense any patronage as they like. And this creates a certain dependency uh, from the population um, that rely on their sectarian patrons for basic services such as education or healthcare. And I mean, this whole sectarian system seeps into every facet of life. Even the basketball league will have been infiltrated by this sectarian system. 
And, and as an illustration of what I'm saying, the bureaucracy of this country is completely bloated. You have 400,000 people employed by the public sector. For example, the National Train Service that's been defunct for decades um, still has hundreds of staff on its payroll, um, which is just proof that people are, I mean, due to the fact that they're desperate and the country finds itself in such a desperate economic situation, the only way for people to survive in the system is to is to become clients of this of this patronage system, uh, which is basically a vicious cycle. And the worse the country gets, the better it is for this sectarian system because it just forces people into their client-patron system that they have. The corruption that exists basically invites a lack of accountability, a lack of transparency, and really divides society along these sectarian lines that in turn fuels division and kills meritocracy and breeds complacency. So if I can just reinforce what Felix is saying about how even the political system failing reinforces the power structures and elites within that system. When Lebanon's financial meltdown began in late 2019, banks had to clamp down uh, with capital controls. So this left a huge financial vacuum and stepping in where the state and financial institutions really failed, Hezbollah has provided ordinary Lebanese citizens with a vital lifeline through the Al-Qard Al-Hassan Association, which is one of its financial arms. So because citizens are cash-strapped due to these capital controls, Al-Qaeda Al-Hassan Association has been able to circumvent these measures. And anyone who's look, looking for a hard currency and liquidity has really relied on this financial arm of, of Hezbollah. It's able to offer people small interest-free loans of up to $5,000. And most importantly, these uh, loans are given in dollars, despite the fact that Hezbollah has been heavily sanctioned by the U.S. It's just another tool by which Hezbollah is able to further entrench its support among the country's population and not just Shiite population. You know, another good example of how deeply dysfunctional the politics is can be expressed in the economic situation of the country because as i mentioned in the beginning you know there's serious inflation going on and the country is almost bankrupt and the cause for that like the long-term cause is how lebanon rebuilt itself after the civil war which ended in 1989 as felix said because the state would borrow a huge amount of money in order to fund construction but a huge amount of it was lost in in corrupt deals and it is estimates that since 2000 about 100 billion us dollars has been lost in the banking system probably you know in kickbacks to to the elite to service this that that the government had to spend about 40 percent of its budget on simply paying off the rents for the for the borrowing it had incurred sorry for the debt it had incurred since then in addition to that there's a number of systemic problems one of them relates to electricity because electricity is heavily subsidized in lebanon and just like its census and everything else is an old band-aid fix which hasn't been improved because the electricity prices were based on oil prices from 1996 
And obviously the oil prices have gone up since 1996. But because of that, these subsidies have had to fill in the gap and means that it's estimated that 40% of Lebanon's entire debt is caused by their desire to subsidize electricity. And they can't stop doing so because of how reliant people in general are on, on electricity. You know, they need it for the fridges, they need it to cook. And the steady supply of electricity has not existed since the end of the war. Instead, you have the so-called generator mafia, where people pay others so that they can run illegal generators. And this is obviously a huge drain on the spending power, which means that instead of spending money on clothes and food, it goes into a corrupt system. So people can shower, they can't cook, they have to throw away food, which means their life gets even more expensive. And most of Lebanon only has electricity for two or three hours a day. It's gotten so bad that recently a plane trying to land on Beirut airport could not land because there was no electricity for the landing lights. Traffic lights often don't work and traffic in Beirut was pretty awful anyway. Now it's even worse. And surgeries can often not be done because the lights in hospitals cannot be kept on. You know, in addition to the electricity subsidies, there's also subsidies on food, medicine and fuel. But because the prices of these go up because things have to be imported in Lebanon because of how little it pays itself, this is a huge drain on the on the government coffers. But an analyst said that lifting the subsidies would cause a social implosion. And the subsidies, as Felix said, also give political factions a huge amount of influence as they can control who gets subsidies and which sectors get subsidies. And it's unclear when the money will run out for the subsidies, but everybody seems to say it's going to happen next month. But that has been said for the last five or six months. So it's, you know, it's anyone's guess when that will actually happen. The long-term problems of this is unemployment, obviously, but also migration, because many young people try to leave the country, which is a major issue for the future if all the people educated leave. But the worry is for many people that the combination of COVID, the political crisis, the financial crisis, and the explosion in the ports of Beirut in August might destroy the middle class beyond repair and therefore seriously hamper the country's recovery. So in addition to these problems, the Lebanese pound has an inflation rate of above 100%, meaning that every year it loses half its value. Lebanon has also been affected by American sanctions in other countries. Uh, Michael, you know more about that. Yes. So, of course, the major cause of instability, uh, instability from the outset has been the monetary and fiscal policies of the government and the lending policies of the banking sector. However, U.S. sanctions on Lebanon, including secondary sanctions for banks knowingly facilitating Hezbollah, have undermined the stability of Lebanon's banking sector by creating what's called a chilling effect and thus reducing the inflow of foreign capital into Lebanon. There has been over the years a dramatic increase in sanctions uh, related to Lebanon on the part of the U.S., and they mainly revolve around Hezbollah and the conflict in Syria. And in fact, of the over 260 targeted sanctions by the U.S. that relate to Lebanon, over 220 of them involve Hezbollah. And former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo explicitly stated that the Trump administration coupled Hezbollah and Iran in its sanction policy considerations and its maximum pressure campaign. An illustration of 
the effect that sanction, U.S. sanctions can have on Lebanon is the following. The Trump administration sanctioned Jamal Trust Bank in August 2019, and it had to liquidate the following month. The Trump administration also signed the Hezbollah International Financing Prevention Amendments Act of 2018, which expanded on the powers of a previous act signed by the Obama administration, which first introduced the threat of secondary sanctions on banks accused of dealing with Hezbollah. U.S. financial pressure on Lebanon is far from negligible and has had a lot of consequences. And even disregarding Hezbollah, the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act has also negatively affected Lebanon. While that act was aimed to mainly to punish businesses that, that interacted with the Syrian government uh, because of the close ties that actors within Lebanon, particularly Hezbollah, have with us, uh, the Assad government, the Caesar Act is another financial mechanism that has negatively affected Lebanon's financial sector. In, in, their, in the politicians' eyes, or in the international community's eyes, perhaps the people are also to blame for the corruption and issues in the country because they keep on getting voted in. But obviously, uh, one could say that the elections are rigged in the sense that there is no choice because it is practically impossible to have a party which runs on a non-confessionalist ticket to win. I mean, for example, the only person to have been able to do that was a, a billionaire called Fouad Mahzoumi, um, who basically had to buy his way into joining the political elite. You know, the, the world basically championed the head of the central bank, Riyad Salemi, who is now one of the most hated figures in Lebanon because it's revealed that while head of the central bank, he basically was completely corrupt and was perhaps involved in a Ponzi scheme and, and is out also being investigated for having um, basically raided the coffers of the country and sent a lot of money to Switzerland. I, well, I can try to give like a, you know, a fifth grader version of what happened to the banks. Because it is a really weird idea, like what he did. Yeah. During the um, 2008 financial crisis, he was hailed for doing an, an exceptionally good job of saving Lebanon from the worst effects of it. And he was considered like fantastic, great banker. But in the last year or so, it's become clear that his way of banking was absolutely insane. Because the, one of the primary reasons for the economic crisis in, in Lebanon right now is that the central bank required dollars to in order to buy things on the international market because of how much Lebanon imports. And the only way it could get that was by having very high interest rates on dollar deposits, which would make it appealing for foreign depositors to deposit the dollars into the country. It could only pay those interest rates by getting more dollars in the bank in order to pay the principal plus interest. And it would get that from the banks within Lebanon. So what it would do is encourage Lebanese banks to deposit money into the uh, central bank of Lebanon and then use that to pay off the debt which he had to the other commercial banks in Lebanon. And they would then again in turn use that money and deposit it in the central bank. And that worked for a while. And then when this collapsed, that's why we have the, the 
financial crisis and that's the Ponzi scheme people talk about basically trying to make money out of nothing and that's it's sustainable until somebody realizes how unsustainable the system is on the other hand though the IMF has been trying to to improve the economic situation in in Lebanon but there has been a huge amount of resistance to it for example the IMF wants currency controls to ensure that money does not leave the country unless it has to a number of rich people resist these currency controls because they want to move their money offshore while it's still possible to make sure it cannot be taxed um, because IMF is also encouraging a so-called haircut, which basically means that a lot of the very wealthy people lo- just lose a percentage of their money and that will be used to pay off debts. The IMF also wants Hezbollah to give up the finance ministry, but because the finance ministry is possibly the most powerful ministry in Lebanon, Hezbollah, of course, does not want to do so. And this is, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, one of the reasons for the political deadlock in a country that like the patronage systems are so deep that no one can can dislodge. So the fact that in uh, in late November, the, the central bank basically continued to obstruct the forensic audit that was led by an international restructuring consultancy. And they had to basically quit in desperation. But it's also, I think it was the completion of the audit is the central demand of international donors. So yeah, the donors and basically the IMF basically requested that an audit would be done and the central bank obstructed it. So that's one of, to add all the reasons that you were talking about. Yeah, no, I think, I think the IMF was willing to give Lebanon a $10 billion loan if they implemented certain policies. But considering the debt which Lebanon has currently incurred, which is $95 billion, and it's, it's a fairly insignificant amount of money. And Hezbollah has said that if IMF terms were accepted, it would, it would cause a revolution. But considering what's happening in the country today, you know, a revolution, revolution seems already to be going on. There's people in the streets constantly. It's like society has imploded on itself. You know, the whole country is, you know, in deep trouble, but none of the IMF reforms are not going to be implemented because of the amount of political resistance to it. It's unlikely that this unrest is going to stop in the shorts. And because the most important things in Lebanon's economy, you know, services and tourism will not recover for the foreseeable future, A, because of COVID and B, because of the very unstable nature of the country is not appealing for tourists or investors. And, you know, that might cause the instability to accelerate because the head of the University of Beirut said that he considers what the country is facing now the biggest crisis since 1866 when the University of Beirut was founded. The fact that people consider this a bigger problem than a civil war probably says enough about how truly catastrophic the situation has become. And yeah, exactly. The the situation won't be getting any better. To add to that, you know, the, the protests in 2019 basically started because the government, desperate for money, tried to tax free calling services like WhatsApp. And the only reason these protests really died down was, I mean, to be honest, because of COVID. And the protests that we see today sh- should be seen, at least in my opinion, as a continuation of these protests and with the worsening of the situation uh, due to COVID and due to the uh, 4th of August uh, port explosion, um, these protests, you know, have just further been fueled and given more reason and more legitimacy. And the fact that with the port explosion that happened, no officials had take, have taken any responsibility. Even the efforts of the judge tasked with determining the cause of the port blast led to the indictment of four politicians. But the judge was then swiftly discredited and accused of targeting the officials. Um, it seems like the political system in Lebanon is managing some way to give no concessions uh, to the population, which is just going to keep on fueling these protests. And, and I don't know where this is going to go, basically.
I think it's going to be interesting to see what gives way first, the social pressure on the political system. So we're seeing protests against the mandated lockdown for COVID, but we also have this intransigence by the political elite and actors to make necessary reforms in terms of good governance, accountability, transparency, no more corruption. And we also have calls from international donors. And this is very much supported both by Macron as well as by the U.S. and the IMF that any international help, financial help, has these red lines, these requirements of instituting political reforms. So it really is just a matter of time which of these forces either boils over and goes out of control or just gives way, becomes more complacent, and whether things will remain more of the status quo or if there's going to be substantive change, whether on the social sides in terms of a social uprising of some sort or political reform that is good, that is beneficial for the country and can take steps forward. And I mean, it's hard, at least on the social side, because you do have political actors such as Hezbollah that have implemented intimidation tactics and they've, they've always have. I do think you say something interesting. It's interesting because I, I believe that the ongoing crisis is probably going to be the deciding one. Like if this doesn't break up the political system, I, I can't imagine something will. Like the political system survived a civil war, and at some point something does does have to break. And I do hope it's a political system because, you know, you can't you can't have an unemployment rate at thirty or thirty five percent, have one in five people in the country be a Syrian refugee and expect stability like you know however much the political elite in the country benefits from the status quo i do think that they also understand that if if the country is completely at war completely collapses there is no economic system for them to leech onto and drain money out of so i do wonder at some point will there come a point where they think okay it has gotten bad enough now we have to institute some degree of reform because the protests have been going on now for, I think it's 14 months. You know, there's, there's not going to stop, I believe. Like if they've gone on for that long, they're not going to just go away. One development to look out for is, I think, what happens with the Iran nuclear negotiations. Because Hezbollah has certainly not hidden its delight that Biden is replacing Trump and therefore the maximum pressure campaign on Iran and therefore Iran's proxies such as Hezbollah will be lifted. Interestingly enough, when French President uh, Macron called for major reforms to Lebanon, he was met with criticism in Iran. Iran's ultra-conservative newspaper Kehan accused him of trying to, and I quote, weaken the Lebanese resistance, when talking about the French-hosted conference at which international donors pledged over 250 million euros to help Lebanon, they called it merely a bluff and said that 
if they really wanted to help Lebanon, international actors should lift sanctions against the Lebanese government and its people. And so you see Iran and Hezbollah are extremely reticent to enacting any types of political reforms that international donors are asking for. Of course, we should not overstate the influence of the nuclear deal on Lebanese politics, even if a nuclear deal is reached with Iran, which offers financial relief to Iran, and therefore Iran is able to provide Hezbollah with the hundreds of millions of dollars in funds that it has long given it. Um, you know, it's not going to solve Lebanon's problems and that, but it will certainly advantage Hezbollah vis-a-vis other political actors and perhaps enough to keep Hezbollah afloat and uh, in turn keep the current political arrangement afloat. Yeah, I totally agree with Michael. The, the chances of perhaps a, a new uh, Iran nuclear deal could mean that the system would survive longer. But it seems at least to be pretty clear since 2000, the, the 2015 demonstrations um, in Beirut, where over 100,000 people asked for change due to the fact that there was huge mounds of uncollected garbage um, in the streets. I mean, in that, in that situation, the government quashed the, pro- the protest, but it's generally considered to be basically the birth of the, the civil movement that later, which is now, sought to challenge uh, the political system. The government had their chance um, after these demonstrations uh, to prove that they were going to change. And in 2018, they had parliamentary elections. But at that point, it was, it was already too late because the voter turnout was under 50%. So the people really seem to have no trust and no faith in the system, even though perhaps it's gonna, it, it will try to show that it's changing. I mean, after that, you have the 2019 nationwide protest. The establishment you know, proposed as Prime Minister Hassan Diab, who was a computer engineering professor and who basically was going to form a new government that they claimed was composed of technocrats uh, with no political loyalties. But like we saw, that didn't bring any change. One would have thought that with the port explosion, which, to be honest, is you know the worst thing that could happen to the capital city of a country. Um, a lot of people thought, finally, you know, the the, the system's going to have to change after such a, a devastating event. But even then, like I said earlier, they made sure that the judges were unable to to do their job and to indict anybody and actually have them pay for the negligence that they basically showed during that uh, situation. To be honest, in my opinion, as it's clear that the people do not believe in the system anymore, but at this point, they don't even have any other option than not to protest because they've been pushed to such a brink. It's very possible that the only way for for there to be a renewal of the system is to perhaps go down into either some sort of civil war, which would lead to a a Lebanese self-destruction. And and perhaps out of that, could a new system be born? Or you would have perhaps a situation where there would be a a form of cantonization, where you would basically have a territorial partition of Lebanon, uh, like they used to be during the civil war, uh, where, you know, the Sunnis would hold Tripoli and, and parts of Beirut, the Shis would hold uh, the western part of Beirut and the, the Bekaa Valley and the 
the south of the country. The Jews would hold the south of Mount Lebanon and the Christians the north of Mount Lebanon. But uh, it really seems like the government is not actually serious about its efforts because it's continuously trying to, to block any possibility or opportunity for change. And the people have reached the, the, the point at which they cannot possibly live anymore, like you said. And so a big problem which, which the Lebanese political system faces is that, it, you know, it's a system based on band-aid fixes. The census in the 1930s, a, a band-aid fix to avoid the sectarian tensions which had taken place in, in Syria in the mid-1920s. Then, for example, the, the uh, fuel subsidies I mentioned, which are based on 1994 prices and haven't changed. And then the new changes to the um, to the parliament from 1989. You know, there's never been a desire for truly systemic change. And I, you know, I, I wonder, as you said, you know, what's going to cause it. And I, I don't know if even a civil war would change this unless the country, as you say, like sort of devolves into, into cantons. On the other hand, you have the... Magnitsky Act, which um, the U.S. uses to target human rights offenders and came based on something which happened in Russia. And it's how they sanctioned certain people in, in Putin's regime. A similar approach would be one of the few things which would work for Lebanon as well, because that would punish the people who benefit from the system economically. And that's the only way to punish them, because politically, they, you know, I think we've proven in this episode, there is nothing to worry about for them. You know, the political system will remain. And if unless you take away the enticements for them to maintain that political system, which is financial wealth and, and power, but primarily financial wealth, you know, it, it's not going to change. And I do think that if countries would be serious about it, I think, you know, targeted sanctions against the Lebanese political elite might be a, a solution. But that's questionable. Do you, do you think the American government would apply those sanctions equally among the different no, Sex. no, they wouldn't. Uh, that, and that's the problem, right? You know, as as Michael has made very clear, they target Hezbollah way more than they would target the, the Maronites. And I think France would have serious reservations about sanctions against the Maronites. Other countries are so closely intertwined in, in Lebanese politics that there would be a lot of pushback against any sanctions against them. And, and even actors within the political system that do want change, uh, like Hassan Diab, when he tried to drop the prices of cement from $100 down to $30 per ton, which basically had been previously controlled by a, a cartel of, of, of three companies that basically pegged the, the price extremely high and uh, didn't allow any international competition. Even when politicians are, are trying to bring the prices down and to fight these cartels, which are so closely tied to the political system, this plan of his basically only had success uh, for a temporary amount of time. It seems practically impossible for change to happen from within and like you said any pressure from the outside doesn't seem to have any any effect on 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 the political system in Lebanon look if something were to happen to Lebanon a conflict a, a civil war um, this would only exacerbate the whole situation with uh, Syrian refugees in the country um, and then create probably a new wave of refugees trying to come towards Europe which would then create you know, more tensions between Turkey and Europe. There's definitely an interest for the international community to solve this issue because it will have international repercussions. Yeah, you know, Lebanon is on its eastern border, Syria, where there's a war. On its southern border is Israel, with which Lebanon is at war. And to its north is Turkey, with which 
it has a complicated set of relations and to its west is the Mediterranean, which has become its own political minefield recently. But I do agree absolutely that, you know, it's in everybody's best interest to ensure that Lebanon's situation improves because if, if it doesn't, it, it's not going to, the, the troubles or the problems aren't going to be consigned to the Middle East. They'll percolate into Europe just like Syria did. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us next time when I sit down with the historian Eugene Rogan to discuss his perspectives on studying history and the importance of it. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Gilles Skokas, with the invaluable aid of Lily Sullivan, Felix Walker, Michael Mimari, Hazar Madah, Max Randall, Frederica Brockhoven, Rose Johnson, Helena Murphy, 